I'm Elliot Kraft, and this is The Cafeteria. Twice a month, we bring you the only English training podcast for Francophone professionals, exclusively for members of Kraft Anglais. Today, we're pulling out all the stops for our first ever cafeteria holiday special. Join us as we take you stateside for an introduction to the holidays à l'américaine, in addition to some helpful tips on how to wish Anglophone colleagues and clients bonne fête de fin d'année, we explore the fascinating world of vintage American holiday cuisine. And what would a holiday special be without celebrity appearances? Get ready for a star-studded guest list including artist Andy Warhol, beloved American poet Robert Frost, and Donald Trump? So put on your ugly sweater, grab your eggnog, and let's get started. I'm terribly nostalgic about the holidays. In one of my most vivid childhood recollections, I'm sitting in the living room armchair watching the snow fall gently in the woods behind my family's suburban home. I would sit there for hours, a fire crackling gently in the fireplace beside the Christmas tree, mesmerized by the solemnity of the sylvan scene. The silence of those Midwestern winters was incomparable and enchanting. As a part of my ritual, though, I would at certain key moments load a compact disc into the stereo and underscore my snowy vigils with music. By the sacred rules that governed my ceremony, only two albums were permitted, and listening to them during other times of the year was strictly forbidden. Gazing out onto the woods, I imagined that the snowflakes falling outside were animated by the music playing in the room, that they were responding in a delicate choreography to its sound, punctuated here and there by the crackling and popping of the fire. As a young adult, I felt some shame when I would find myself recreating this scene in various ways during the holidays. As I've gotten older, I've come to fully embrace my nostalgia, proudly assuming my childhood ceremony and blending it with the more recent rituals that have established themselves in my life over the years. It's difficult to think of a more concentrated expression of culture, spiritual, national, familial, individual, than the rituals that give holidays meaning and purpose. The unique ceremonies that define these celebrations, the gestures, the places we go, the people we gather with, the things we eat and drink, speak volumes about who we are and who we were. So it seems only fitting that our holiday special should be one for the cultural note space of the Craft Anglais platform. Without further ado, Let's indulge in seasonal nostalgia together by visiting a few distinctively American scenes from holidays past and present. Act one, mini lesson. Something I'm often asked by students this time of year is, what should I say when wishing Anglophone colleagues or clients bonne fête de fin d'année? At first glance, this question seems pretty straightforward, but when clients ask it, it's typically because they're sensitive to the fact that we're not dealing here with a simple question of translation, and that more subtle issues are implied. 
While occasions like Fête Nationale and the 4th of July are national or even civic events, part of what makes the Fête de Fandane unique is the way they bring together the secular and sacred, and with them, broader questions relating to diversity and difference. I'll be forgiven, I hope, for stating the obvious. Not all who observe a religious holiday this time of year observe the same one, and many celebrate nothing at all either because they simply don't observe the holidays or because the ones they do observe fall in months other than December. This state of affairs is, of course, the same in France as it is in the United States. And despite some of our differences when it comes to interpreting the freedom of religious expression and the separation of church and state, we also share something else in common an increase in the capacity of questions relating to diversity and difference to polarize the body politic. As an illustration of this trend, and a dazzling example of how not to address your Anglophone colleagues, clients, and friends this season, consider the following. As we approach the end of the year, you know, we're getting near that beautiful Christmas season that people don't talk about anymore. (laughs) They don't use the word Christmas because it's not politically correct. Well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. These remarks may not have gotten a lot of attention in the French press, but they were pretty big in the United States when Trump first rolled them out during the 2016 election campaign as a part of a strategy of turning political correctness into what we often call a political football. There was even talk of a war on Christmas, in which Trump figured as a long-awaited liberator, rescuing an imperiled holiday from the forces of evil. Conspiracy theories abounded regarding Trump's predecessor, with allegations that President Obama never once wished the nation a Merry Christmas. Apparently, the war on Christmas people didn't see these. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. I want to wish you all Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Michelle and I wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. But we did want to take a moment to wish you all a Merry Christmas from our family to yours. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Of course the Obamas wished the nation a Merry Christmas. Like in France, a lot of people in the States say Merry Christmas spontaneously, and most of these people couldn't care less about the war on Christmas or if they themselves or the person they're speaking to is actually Christian. It's just something people say. But does that mean you should? There's nothing mysterious about the advice I give clients when asked about what to say in English at the end of the year. Keep it simple and use Happy Holidays to cover the sacred, and Happy New Year to cover the secular. But let's go further with some details and some examples of these phrases in context. A first important note is that while Happy Holidays is a trusty, all-purpose expression for any time before the end of the year, Happy New Year is typically only said after the clock strikes midnight on January 1st. This moment signals the end of Happy Holidays time and the beginning of Happy New Year time. Before then, you can bid your colleagues, clients, or friends a festive farewell by gesturing to the coming New Year with a formulation like, Happy Holidays. Let's talk in 2022. Or, Have a nice holiday. Talk to you in the New Year. I've been testing these for a few days now, and as I record this, they still sound quite nice and natural to me. These are great ways to end the last call of the year or to wish friends good night on a snowy December evening after a dinner. 
It's worth pointing out that while Happy Holidays, with two capital H's, gets the plural, holidays, Have a Nice Holiday does not. So, Happy Holidays, Have a Nice Holiday. Now, if you're not sure it's the final exchange of the year, if there's a chance you'll talk or see one another again, but it remains unclear, you might consider one of these variations. If we don't talk before, have a nice holiday. Or a slightly more involved one. If we don't talk before, happy holidays. All the best for the new year. Now, these are all very friendly. But if you want to add a little extra warmth, if it's someone you're a bit closer to or who you've worked with for a while, or if that's just your style, play around with the word wonderful. Have a wonderful holiday. Have a wonderful holiday. All the best for the new year. If these formulations seem daunting, or if the happy holiday versus happy new year thing sounds risky, just stick with a simple happy holidays, which kind of covers everything. It's easy. It's two words. Just remember to put a smile behind it. Happy holidays. You see, there are lots of great things you can say to your colleagues, clients, or friends at the end of the year without participating in the culture wars. If you're writing, you'll have a little more flexibility. You'll find several written options, along with the spoken ones we've just covered, in the entry for today's episode on the Craft Anglais platform. And now, let's eat. If you've been around Craft Anglais for a while, you'll have gathered that one of my preferred pastimes is cooking. And you can be sure that over the break, I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time padding around the kitchen with a gin sparkler, preparing one delectable dish or another. My private clients are pros when it comes to talking about food in English, because I'm regularly asking things like, what did you eat? And what did you cook? And how did you prepare it? For me, these questions are especially interesting around the holidays, and my own culinary experiments in recent years have been inspired in large part by discussions with students about the dishes that appear on their holiday tables. As you'd expect, in return, I'm frequently asked, and what about you guys? What do Americans eat during the holidays? There's really no straight answer. It's like in France, where some do turkey and some do lamb, and everybody's plateau de fruits de mer looks a little different. When responding to this question, I often find myself describing some of the classic vintage American dishes that our grandparents prepared and that have been passed down from generation to generation over the last three quarters of a century. Now, we're not talking about dishes from our deep ancestral roots here. I mean, the immigrant story, the whole melting pot and all of that— and we're certainly not talking about anything having to do with appellation contrôlée. What makes these dishes distinctively American is their persistence in the U.S. cultural imaginary and their unmistakable presence at millions of Thanksgiving and holiday dinner tables across the country. And now, at least one dinner table in France. To introduce you to these classic dishes, I'd like to take you back in time, like Ebenezer Scrooge, to American Christmases past. It'll be less atmospheric than Victorian England because it's the Cold War. You are the target. Our president has told us that even against the most powerful defense, an aggressor in possession of an effective number of atomic bombs could cause hideous damage. If there is insufficient warning of attack, No time for organized evacuation according to plan 
In the late 40s and early 50s, while public service announcements like these were playing in American living rooms, something else was going on in the kitchen. A revolution was taking place in food processing. It began, in a word, with soup. Well, I thought I knew every magic trick there was. <laughs> well, maybe you do. But this is a different kind of magic. This is mealtime magic built around soup. Last year, approximately 60 million individual packets of Lipton's onion-flavored soup mix were sold in the United States. Introduced in the 50s, this dehydrated soup mix and similar products were marketed for the busy home chef. No time to make a bouillon this weekend? The mushrooms at the supermarket were looking a little sad? Don't worry, we've got you covered. All you need is a can opener, potable water, and a heat source. What's fascinating about the holiday dishes that emerge from this brothy heyday of industrialized food production is that none of them is actually a soup. Indeed, the whole strategy was to provide a kind of culinary Swiss army knife. Suddenly, soup was more than soup. Soup is more than soup. It adds flavor to your meals. It lends color to your table. It's a time-saving ingredient in quick cookery. It's an ideal, convenient sauce for many dishes. It's... But let me show you. Overnight, companies like Lipton's and Campbell's transformed the processed food market in the States, sinking millions into absurd but charming advertising campaigns. The dark underside to the success of these campaigns is that such non-perishable and easy-to-employ products were perfectly adapted to the horizon of nuclear fallout concurrently being promoted in the U.S. government's fear campaigns. Your next step is to equip the shelter. Stock it with everyday materials with which you can face an emergency calmly. A battery radio. Power may fail. Flashlights and spare batteries. First aid kit. A three-day supply of canned and packaged food, bottled water and other liquids. It's hard to escape the irony that the products that today play an essential role in millions of festive and joyful holiday feasts have their origins in a context of terror and the threat of nuclear destruction. But enough about the end of the world. Let's talk about food. I'm not lying when I tell you that I am tracking, as we speak, a shipment containing, among other things, several packets of Lipton's onion soup mix, described in a 1957 volume of good housekeeping in terms you'll now recognize. From dip to soup to main dish, this talented mix gives meals more zip. How will I be employing my talented mix, you ask? This classic entree goes by many names. In the 50s, it was marketed by Lipton as California dip, though it's also gone under the names Lipton Ranch dip and the considerably fancier-sounding French onion dip. In my family, we always just called it chips and dip, and it was always supplied by my grandparents who would drive to our home to visit during the holidays. The preparation, as you might expect, couldn't be simpler, and I'm reading here again from Good Housekeeping. Blend one package Lipton onion soup mix as it comes from the package, that means in its pure and unadulterated powdered form, into one pint commercial sour cream. Sour cream is like creme fraiche, but this is way better with creme fraiche. Keep leftover dip, if any, under refrigeration. Note the parenthetical, if any. 
The health conscious will use light or légère sour cream and gingerly dunk various crudités. Those of us who understand what the holidays are really all about will go entier and drown our potato chips in the highly, highly addictive dip. Concerning this entree, I can only concur with the sinister Lipton marketers when they describe the dish as the tastiest appetizer ever dipped up with potato chips. Let's look at another dish. The magical soup that's more than soup footage we've been sampling in today's episode comes from the good people at Campbell's Soup Company, an iconic producer of condensed canned soups immortalized in the 1960s pop art of Andy Warhol. While Campbell's soup products indeed come in a dizzying array of more or less identically labeled cans, I hold in my hand as we speak what I consider to be the holy grail of their product line, Campbell's Cream of Mushroom Soup. The time-honored principle of Swiss Army Knife convenience has been maintained, etched indelibly and for all time in the instructions on the label. And I quote, Mix soup plus one can water. That's a plus sign. Microwave on high for three to three and a half minutes in covered microwavable bowl. Let stand for one minute, carefully remove, and stir. Here I have to confess that I've probably never consumed this product in its soup form. I guess I'm in the soup that's more than soup camp. My go-to dish using Campbell's cream of mushroom soup goes by the simple but elegant name green bean casserole. Bizarrely, the recipe is not to be found on the can of soup, but on the back of a product by French's company called Original Crispy Fried Onions. While they don't appear in the dish's title, which would perhaps add weight to the name and rob it of some of its poetry, there's no green bean casserole without French's fried onions. Here's how fast and easy it is to get this dish from can to table. Preheat oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Mix cream of mushroom soup, milk, and pepper in baking dish. Stir in green beans and crispy fried onions. Bake 30 minutes until hot. Stir. Top with remaining onions. Bake 5 minutes longer or until onions are golden brown. I'm quite serious when I say there's something truly sublime about this dish. Despite its mind-boggling simplicity, however, I won't be making green bean casserole this weekend. I did it for Thanksgiving and sort of felt like, I'm good, thanks. But now as I'm recording this, I'm wondering if I shouldn't have added fried onions to my impatiently awaited order of Lipton's onion soup mix. Now let me be clear. It would be a gross mischaracterization of my native culture were I to leave you with the impression that these vintage American classics dominate the dinner table at Thanksgiving and during the holidays. At Christmas back home, our family meal is centered around a fillet of beef, mashed or roasted potatoes, and various bright and fresh vegetable dishes. We also, I should point out, incorporate dishes that do connect back to my family's European heritage. But it's simply not the holidays without these classic dishes. Having said this, it's not the Cold War anymore. So it's only natural that with time, classic recipes such as the ones I'm describing would evolve in their ingredients and preparation. Indeed, during the holidays, the internet is flooded with highbrow, gourmet versions of these classic dishes. So I don't know about you, but I'm almost always disappointed whenever I have green bean casserole. It's mushy, it's overcooked, there's not that much mushroom flavor. I'm going to show you my way. 
And oh my gosh, is it so good. Stop right there. I've heard enough. I don't know who this guy is other than the phantom-like product of a rapid Friday morning YouTube search. Whoever he is, I can guarantee that his test kitchen hasn't conducted half as many experiments to update these classic recipes as my own has. I've tried all the classics from scratch with countless variations. And I've arrived with so many other Americans, including professional chefs, gastronomy fetishists, and Michelin addicts, at the following conclusion. Nothing beats the originals. And you can be sure that when people sneak into the kitchen for a midnight snack on Christmas Eve, they're not going for the beef filet. They're going for the green bean casserole. They're going for the cocktail wieners and barbecue sauce. They're going for the leftover chips and dip, if any. So this holiday season, as every year, in my home, the rack of lamb and gilardo oysters will proudly share the dining table with several of those terribly delectable American classics in their unadulterated original recipes, because sometimes there's just no substitute. No canned or powdered soup-based classic is complete without a meat or fish dish and a dessert. And had I time, I'd regale you with the history of the honey-glazed ham and the jello mold. But we, my friends, have an appointment with a literary classic. For those of you who are curious, you'll find recipes related to today's episode of the cafeteria in the foodie space of the Craft Anglais community. That's right, there's a foodie space. And while it might be a little late for this holiday season, the adventurous chefs among you will find all the typical ingredients you need at one of the various online épiceries américaines that I am so, so grateful for. And what about you? What classic holiday feasts do you celebrate in your home? And more importantly, what's for dinner? Hop over to the community and tell us all about it. As always on the cafeteria, we've got a pronunciation break coming up, as well as an office hour session where we take questions from Craft Anglais members. As a final scene in today's mini-lesson, I'd like to leave you with a short poem by Robert Frost, one of the most beloved American poets, and a poem whose words many Americans will have in mind this time of year. The title is Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Whose woods are these, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Act two, pronunciation break. In the previous pronunciation break, we looked at the famous TH sound. Today, I'd like to introduce a pronunciation problematic we'll have several occasions to return to in future episodes of the cafeteria. 
I call it T becomes D, and today I just want to get it on your radar. The basic idea here is that in American English and in many dialects of British English, the T's that we find in the middle of words become pronounced as D's. Now I'm not introducing a general rule here. I would just like to introduce the principle with a few notable examples. Listen to this: thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety. All of these numbers end with the letters T and Y. But do you hear a T T pronounced? Let me say the numbers again: thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy. 80, 90. As we've seen in other pronunciation breaks, this kind of modification is something that has evolved spontaneously over time to facilitate the production of speech. More specifically, the D reduces the effort required to get from four to e and from fifth to e. Forty, fifty. What's required with forty and fifty? Is just more than is needed for the word to remain clear and comprehensible. Introducing today's pronunciation break, I said today I'd like to introduce a pronunciation problematic. Here's another great example. I didn't say problematic; rather, that t became a d. Problematic. Now, some British accents, especially in contexts that I might describe as elevated, keep the hard t in places where it just wouldn't be natural for an American and many other British speakers to use it. In the previous episode of the Cafeteria, we sampled an audio recording of the great English actor Paul Schofield interpreting Shakespeare's Hamlet. Let's listen again to Hamlet's exchange with Polonius. What do you read, my lord? Words, words, words. What is the matter, my lord? Between who? No, I mean the matter that you read, my lord. The actor playing Polonius here clearly says "matter" with the full force of that double T. This is something you'll never hear stateside, where the word is pronounced "matter" as though there are two D's. Some British speakers will adapt the pronunciation in another direction. What's the matter with him? The T becomes D problematic is often found with double T's: matter, butter. Better, but let's not forget those single T's. Thirty problematic. Litigate latest Italy. Now to get the problematic out of your head and into your body, let's do a few exercises. Please repeat after me. This matter should be litigated. This matter should be litigated by June at the latest. By June at the latest. Good. Now let's try the whole phrase. This matter should be litigated by June at the latest. This matter should be litigated by June at the latest. It might not be easy to feel this as a non-native speaker, but for me, when I think about it, I really can feel the way that the softening of the T into a D helps accelerate and move the phrase along, kind of like a liaison. Let's try a couple more. Please repeat after me. These potatoes could use more butter. These potatoes could use more butter. 
Now, we need that first tea of potatoes, just like we needed the last tea of latest. Without getting into overly complicated explanations, the pronunciation of the hard T or lack thereof is tied to the number of syllables in the word and where the emphasis falls in its pronunciation. Let's try one more that incorporates our TH lesson from last time. The wetter the weather, the better the sweater. The wetter the weather, the better the sweater. And all three once again, just to bring our pronunciation break together. This matter should be litigated by June at the latest. These potatoes could use more butter. The wetter the weather, the better the sweater. That's it for this episode's pronunciation break. As always, you'll find the exercise phrases included with the episode on the Craft Anglais platform. From there, you can also hop over to the pronunciation discussion space of the community to comment on or ask questions about today's pronunciation break or about any pronunciation-related point you'd like to discuss. And now it's time for office hours. Act 3, Office Hours. In the final act of the cafeteria, we take questions from you, the Craft Anglais community. Today's first question comes from Sabine, who asks, I hear both most people and most of the people, and I was wondering if there's a difference. Great question, Sabine. There is a difference. When I say most people, I'm indicating a simple subset of the group, all people, everyone in the world, which also happens to be a majority, most. The statement, most dogs like naps, means that a majority of all dogs likes naps. Now, as soon as I add the words of the, as in the example you gave, most of the people, I introduce a third group. We have the group of all people, a subgroup of that group, and another subgroup of that group. This sounds way more complicated than it is. If I say, most of the dogs in this room like naps, We have the group of all dogs, those dogs from that group that are in this room, and the majority subgroup of the dogs in this room who like naps. Perhaps a simpler way to look at it is, when I say most dogs like naps, I'm making a general observation about dogs. I don't have specific dogs in mind. But as soon as I say most of the dogs in this room, I do. I'm talking about dogs in this room and a subgroup of those dogs who like naps. The next question comes from Roma, who asks, In one of the quizzes on LinkedIn, I noticed you used the verb to await. What's the difference between to await and to wait? Thanks for your question. The first thing that comes to mind is that to await is somewhat literary. What I mean is it's one of those verbs you'll almost never hear me use in speech. That's what to wait is for. It's the classic, everyday translation of this particular sense of the French verb attendre. The second thing to point out is that these verbs are also applied differently when it comes to prepositions. The more literary to await doesn't take a preposition. I await the king's orders. To wait, on the contrary, does take a preposition. For, 
I'm waiting for the king's orders. While await is a great word to be aware of, I wouldn't feel any pressure to use or work with it unless you're doing more creative, journalistic, or literary writing in English. Finally, Michelle asks, I love the icons for the different craft anglais training spaces. Could you say something about the organization of the content on the platform? First, Michelle, thanks for the comment about the icons. I can only take partial credit for those. They were designed collaboratively with Steve, Craft Anglais' amazingly talented graphic designer. When we need an icon, we work together to come up with a concept, then Steve takes it from there and makes it look awesome. I wanted Craft Anglais to be different than other English training solutions. A lot of my clients over the years have complained that many solutions on the market feel very corporate and cold and that it's hard to find the motivation to follow the lessons. Instead of doing something classic, like a grammar section, a vocabulary section, etc., I decided to approach things in a way that was both more creative, but also more reflective of my own experience coaching Francophone professionals in English. If Craft Anglais grammar lessons, for example, are distributed across several different spaces on the platform, each with its own theme, this isn't because I suddenly had a platform and needed a system of grouping lessons. The classification is really the organization that suggested itself spontaneously over many years of teaching. It's just kind of the way I think about English and communicate about English with my clients. If you have a question about any aspect of the English language or about the Craft Anglais platform that you'd like to hear answered here in office hours, post to the Craft Anglais community or use the community messenger to message me directly. It was a big year for Craft Anglais. We've been live for only two months now, but the project has been in the works for well over a year. I want to take a moment here at the end of 2021 to thank my team the dedicated and talented band of co-conspirators who have helped make what was just an idea in a language coach's head a reality. So to Victor and Anne Lees, to Joe and Agnes, to Alex and Damien, to Obi-Wan and Benjamin, thank you. I want to give a special shout out to Steve Georges Marie, who was with the project when it was still just a couple of vector icons. And to you, the first members of the Craft Anglais community, Thank you for your confidence in us and for the precious feedback you've given us on the platform in its first weeks. That does it for this episode of The Cafeteria. I'll be off for a couple of weeks catching up on some snoozing, but lesson publication on the platform and our Thursday LinkedIn quick quiz will continue without interruption. Join us in January when we'll be kicking off the new year with a series of special episodes of The Cafeteria with tips and strategies to give your linguistic New Year's resolutions wings. Be well, stay safe, and have a wonderful holiday. Coucher Jean-Pierre. Pas bouger.